Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. In the meantime, pay no attention to the red balloon that's in the, on the ceiling right now. That's a good story about that balloon. Uh, we have vacation Bible school this week. It was a wonderful week and all sorts of moving parts uh, to make uh, things work. And that was the only slight oversight was the helium balloon idea inside the sanctuary. There were eight other ones, though, and they didn't find their way up there. So that's a praise. Uh, I do find it interesting being in a Presbyterian church. Those that are new to Presbyterian churches. Basically, we tend to attract engineer types a lot. And I've heard at least 40 different ways in which we could have gotten that balloon down since Friday. Now, my first reaction when I saw it go up was something to shoot it. That's got to be the best way to do it. For real. Everything from a laser, but helium and lasers don't work real well together. Someone even said a 22 would get it down very easily, which is true. A BB gun would be great. One person this morning said we should fill the room with hydrogen, and that would make the helium. Uh, you could pay a lot to have someone in a lift take it down. That's what we obviously opted not to do so far. Or the half-life for Mylar is about 50 years, so it'll probably be up there for a while. But there is a 2.3% chance, someone told me from the choir earlier, his name will go nameless. I won't say anything about Jeff telling me this, but he said 2.3% chance it'll come down in any of the next four services that we have. So that's something to keep in mind. Now, now that we've dealt with that, we can turn to the Bible. And we're going to look at Galatians 3 and continuing our study through this wonderful epistle of Paul. It's an urgent epistle. It's different than the other epistles in that he writes with a certain uh, pointedness that's different. He starts with niceties and salutations in the other epistles. Even though those churches were were suffering from serious sin problems within. They had uh, understood grace, and he was writing to encourage them. Whereas in Galatia, yes, the gospel had come, the church was growing, people had come to Christ, but almost immediately after introducing himself, he jumps right into essentially uh, scolding them for leaving the gospel of grace. They were adding to trust in Christ works. Uh, it, could have, it was different aspects of the old Jewish law, keeping certain days and rituals, circumcision, uh, various cultural norms and, and uh, practices. They were adding to faith in Christ these things in order to be right with God and right with God's people. And so Paul writes to immediately address this aberration, this aberration that was distorting the gospel, making it no gospel at all. And so for two chapters, Paul is both explaining his authority to speak on this matter as an apostle and also saying how important it is that we get straight what the gospel is. In the first, uh, first few verses, he says, I am astonished, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. So now let's pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. We'll hear Paul continue to teach us about the importance of the purity of the gospel by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Hear God's word. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit... Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law 
or by hearing with faith. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the futility in trusting our efforts, our performance, our rule-keeping, our discipline, our perceived righteousness as the way to be right with you. Lord God, free us from trust in anything but our perfect, sufficient Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For He alone, in Him alone, do we have salvation, do we find our life. Teach us the gospel of grace afresh this day, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. The late Rich Mullins, in one of his songs, I believe the song is called Creed, and it's a song where he lists basically the Apostles' Creed, and he sings it. And he says something profound at the beginning. He's saying, I am not making it, it is making me. And I want to stress to you, my brothers and sisters, as we dig into this doctrine and these statements and these words that teach us about what is true, I want you to understand that every one of you, myself included, we believe something, and it manifests itself in our lives. I don't have to hear you tell me what you believe. I could look at your life, you could look at my life, and you would know what my creed is, what my doctrine is, what my philosophy is, my worldview is. Uh, You act in accordance with your worldview, with your doctrine. It's just the way it is. So we need God's Word to shape our worldview. We need the Bible's doctrine to teach us as we think what is right, we begin to do what is right according to what He guides and directs us in. Now, I say this because what we're covering is heavy stuff. I mean, Paul is digging in deep with the problems that the Galatian people are facing, why they are struggling the way they are. Uh, He writes deeply and profoundly about our union with Christ, what it is to be justified before God, made right before God, what it means to be adopted, what it means to be in union with Christ, uh, what it means to be sanctified or perfected or completed. These are all words I can say and just pass over without explaining, and I don't want to do that. I want to take time to see what Paul is teaching us. It is God's Word. And he does so in a series of questions that we'll analyze in this text before us. But before we do that, let's remember uh, from whence we've come. Already in verse 16 of chapter 2, we had one of the most profound verses in the whole New Testament teaching us this important doctrine of justification by faith alone. Look at verse 16 in chapter 2 of Galatians. Paul there wrote, Yet we know... That a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we mean justified not necessarily before men, not here, but before God. We're justified. We're made right. We have a relationship with Him. Not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So it's not by what we do, but it's by trust, by belief, by resting in Christ in His works, His righteousness. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In one verse, three times, Paul says, justification, being made right with God, happens by faith in the work of Christ, not by what we do. Now, putting it simply, personal obedience cannot earn anyone a healed relationship with God. Personal obedience cannot make God accept you. Personal obedience will not make God love you more. Personal obedience, works of the law or human performance, however you want to term it, they are not not the basis for our salvation. Faith alone in Christ alone in His work, that's what makes a person right with God. Period. By faith in Christ and His finished work, we're given the righteousness of Jesus 
Thereby, God accepts us. By faith in Christ, it means simply that you believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose again for the forgiveness of your sins. This is what brought us to verse 20 last week. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. A purpose statement for every believer in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, so I'm in union with Christ in his death. It is no longer I who live, so my identity is wrapped up in Christ. But Christ who lives in me. And this is key. And the life I now live, in the flesh, here and now, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is important. It sets up Galatians 3. The error they had fallen into, which we all fall into in our lives, is the belief that we're saved by grace, justified by grace. We trust Christ, we're justified, but now the rest of my life is working to stay that way. We work to grow, to be more mature, to be perfected. God saved me, now I do the rest. And that, my brothers and sisters, is an assault on the actual gospel. Because what we have in Galatians 2.20 and then in Galatians 3 is reminding us that it's the work of justifying us, the grace that God poured out to justify us, is the same grace then that he extends to perfect us into the likeness of Christ. It's not at all that we would say we don't obey. What we're saying is that obedience will rightly happen when we understand the gospel. It's totally different to be motivated by guilt and fear that God won't love us or he'll love us more if we do X, Y, and Z. Totally different than recognizing he does love us. He does accept us in Christ, for Christ, totally sufficient. Now I can react to what he has done. I saw a wise parent who had a teenager. I had spent his life parenting this child to teach them the gospel, to learn grace. And the child understood. And I remember that the the child wanted to do something that was questionable. And right in front of me, asked the parent, can I do this? And the parent said, do what you want. And he rolled his eyes and he said, oh, he said that. And he kind of walked off knowing he couldn't do that. He couldn't. It wasn't him anymore. And it wasn't the way... He had learned the gospel. And his father wasn't saying, don't do it. He's saying, do what you want. And you see, as you understand the gospel, what you want will change. That's how obedience comes. When you are in appreciation for what God has done for you in Christ, that changes the way you answer the question, should I or shouldn't I? Now, let's consider the text before us. Building up to it, we have several urgent statements. I am astonished you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Later in chapter 5, Paul says something interesting when he writes, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You started well, but what, what happened? And then here, O oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That This has caused Philip Ryken in his commentary to say this, The biblical doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is a doctrine for the whole Christian life from beginning to end. It fuels your whole Christian life. Your whole response to God in obedience is based on what he's done for you initially in bringing you to faith in his son. So when they forsake this, he says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? And J.B. Phillips has a paraphrase of the Bible. Uh, It's not accurate in all the linguistic ways we'd like a, a translation to be accurate, but a paraphrase that definitely captures the spirit. J.B. Phillips says, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Surely you can't be so idiotic, Philip says. 
And when we recognize how follysome it is to leave the umbrella of grace, as it were, that God has given us, to somehow go out on our own to earn our way, we see how foolish this is. It's a burden we cannot bear, we cannot carry. Now, Paul asks a series of six rhetorical questions in these verses. Look with me at these verses. And you'll notice he says, a true preacher, let me ask you only this, only this. Then he asks six questions, uh, just like a preacher would do, right? I have two points for you and nine points later. First question, who has bewitched you in verse one? Now, let's not pass over this too quickly by using this this term bewitched. Who's cursed you? Who's condemned you? Who's cast a spell upon you? Who has contorted your thinking to be living this life of Jesus plus? Who's done this? Well, we can say the doctrinal error has basically two primary sources, human ignorance and uh, rebellion, or could have demonic influence. And he doesn't say specifically what's causing this error, but he is saying that it is that serious, that it could even be demonic, that it's something that's crept in here. And you remember earlier he said, if an angel tells you a different gospel than what we have preached, let him be accursed. So by saying, who has bewitched you? He's saying, don't underestimate how serious this doctrinal error is. Who has bewitched you? That would catch anyone's attention. If it's the foolish part, calling him a fool didn't do it. Who has bewitched you? So if you're here now thinking, well, I have something to offer to God, or I'm doing this so that God would love me more, or, or this is the basis for my right standing before God, I would just say, who's bewitched you to think that way? Who has contorted you in such a way that you would think and trust in something that cannot save you, your own works? This is the heart of Paul as he says this to these people. I remember something like nine years ago, I, I, we were on a mission trip, one of the early mission trips we did. I think it might have been the first year we went to Juarez. There were several teams put together, a team from our church and several other churches, and we went to Juarez, and there was one guy right away I could tell he's going to be a tough one because they give you this manual. They used to have a manual that would tell you certain rules to keep while you were on the trip, and they were mostly for personal safety. They, it wasn't like a book of legalisms, but rather be careful about these things. Like you could wear certain clothes that could, could send the wrong connotations. There's a lot of gang activity. So this guy took it upon himself. He wasn't voted upon or anything like that. He just decided he was going to make sure everybody followed every rule. And he would follow us around, and he literally would, would bring up points of, of uh, breach with the rules that you might have, and we were all kind of wearing thin with this guy. And there was an older pastor on the trip and myself, and we were sitting there eating lunch one time, and he was telling some of the teenagers something they shouldn't have been doing. And I remember uh, he learned, leaned to me, and he kind of saw the look on our face, like we're like, oh, please, man, just be quiet. And three days into this, he leans to us, and he goes, you know what? They kind of joke about it. At my church, they, think I, they call me the legalist. Thought, that's not funny. It's not funny at all. I mean, if you would have said, in my church, they call me the one who practices license. I'm the, I'm the gross sinner. What would you think? That's bad, right? But a legalist is okay? And I'm thinking to myself, what should I say? And uh, thankfully, the older pastor said, well, friend, you need to be saved then. For our fellow missionary. Because if he believes that a keeping of rules somehow gives him more merit or brings him some kind of uh, righteousness in himself, he misses the point. It's not a little deal. Who's bewitched us to even think for a moment we're that righteous? Who's bewitched you to think, Galatians, that you could add to what Christ has done? Who's brought this into to your mind and thinking? Because if that's what you think, it'll manifest itself in everything you do in your life. Look at the second question that Paul asks in the second verse. 
Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So this is the first time Paul refers to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a particular personal way with the Galatians. Up to this point, he's been speaking very, uh, very doctrinally, very in a, in a sense that this is what's true. Uh, and now he's saying he's speaking a little bit to the to the experience that they had had, that the Holy Spirit had come upon them. It's God, the father and God, the son upon the son's ascension into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has always been active in the life of his church before the cross and after the cross. But there's a special ministry of the spirit, especially in the first century where the spirit was doing uh, man, was manifesting God's presence in a way that was unusual and it was building the church as the scriptures were being penned and the people could see the work of the spirit the people sensed the work of the spirit they themselves were born again and recognized that it was the act of the spirit that regenerated them that made them trust christ they got that they understood that and they also understood inherently that it wasn't something they did to make it happen it was the spirit who did it so paul says did you receive the spirit By works of the law, by obedience, by performance, by keeping certain standards, by doing these rites and rituals? Is that how the Spirit of God came to you? Or by hearing with faith? Faith in who? In Christ, the one who sent the Spirit. How is it that you receive the Spirit? A rhetorical question. Clearly, it wasn't by what they did. It's by the will of God moving the Spirit to save them, to perfect them, to convict, to encourage, to strengthen Did the Holy Spirit work because you did the right things or because you believed in Jesus? What prompts the Holy Spirit to do what he does? Your obedience? Faith in Christ. By believing, trusting, resting upon having faith in Christ, there, in that context, that's where the Spirit works. And this is why he asks this question to show them, you can't say that you have become a believer, you're justified by faith, But now the rest of the Christian life has got to have my works added for God to continue to accept me. You can't say that. Where'd the Spirit come from? Your works are from God's will by the faith that you have in Christ, His merit. Then a very simple question, verse 3. Are you so foolish? That sounds harsh, but seriously, think about how appropriate the question is at this point. Uh, Remember, unfortunately, time only allows us to look at five verses a week, right? But... If by this time you would have read verse the whole first chapter, the whole second chapter, you would have come to the third chapter. And at this point, he just stops and says, are you so foolish? Don't you get it? Do you see how ridiculous it is that you would think you can add something to what Christ has done to make you acceptable to the Father? Are you that foolish, he's saying. I want you to think about it honestly. Not too long, because it's somewhat depressing. But honestly, at what point in your life, take any three or four day period could you possibly honestly say that if you waited out you really did more good things than you did bad things people do it all the time i talk to well-meaning people religious people they say how do you know you're right with god how do you know your eternity secure they'll say well i just believe you know i work hard at it and i believe that in the end my good will outweigh my bad i have to just stop and say seriously i mean honestly let's just for a moment not count the sins of omission you know the things that we should have done but we didn't Okay, take those out for a moment, just to be nicer to ourselves. Now think of your week. Think of the last three days, 72 hours. Analyze them, truthfully. Did you do more good things than you did bad things? Now, think of the good things. How many of them were done selflessly? Okay, that's enough. I can only handle that much. Are we that foolish to think we've got something to contribute 
to the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that God would love us more or accept us more? When will we realize it's all been done for us in Christ? And the reason why we obey now is a reaction, a response to the great work of Christ and the surety that his righteousness is now ours. That's so foolish, Paul says. How could he even think that way? Stop. Take a breath. Think is what Paul, Paul is saying here, communicating. Perfectly legitimate question. Are you so foolish? Look at the fourth question. Verse 3. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, the Spirit of God you acknowledge is who saved you, who regenerated you, gave you new life. Are you saying, Galatians, that the Spirit did that, but now He kind of shuts off and then it's up to you now to perfect yourself, to complete yourself, to mature yourself, to be discipled? Is that what you're saying? By these actions you're taking, that you're allowing the Judaizers to bring these things in by following these rules and these rituals? Are you saying that what the Spirit has begun, you now perfect? You're justified by the Spirit's work, the giving of faith to grasp Christ, to embrace, to trust. But you mature or sanctified by your works? Now, some of you may be new to our church, and we have a wonderful statement that helps you understand what we believe the Scripture says, and it's the Westminster Confession of Faith and its catechisms. Now, in your hymnal you have in the back, and if you have your hymnal, turn to page 871. I want to show you something that I think is very helpful. This is such an important teaching doctrine that we understand and grasp. I think it will set you free in many regards as you come to understand what God has done for you and what he is doing for you now through the gospel. In page 871, starting at question 31, there is a series of important questions that logically link together what the Scripture teaches. Please understand that this document is subservient to the Scriptures, but we believe it does a faithful job in bringing together the totality of Scriptural teaching and then laying it out in questions and answers, much like Paul asked questions and answers and so forth. Now look at question 31 and follow with me so you can grasp how this answers this question Paul asks, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? Notice how the Scripture answers this as it's gathered up in this shorter catechism question. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Christ, freely offered to us in the Gospel. So even the faith that we have in Christ is enabled by the Holy Spirit, that's who initiates your life in Christ. Okay, now follow. Some of the things that accompany this. What are the benefits? What benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? They are, that they that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification. And the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. So, when the Spirit of God breathes life into us, we embrace Christ. At the same moment, you might say, if we can bring it down to a moment, you would have uh, happening the justification, the statement of our righteousness. You would also be adopted. So it's not just impersonal, uh, some legal transaction on its own. It's a legal adoption which gives you the rights and privileges of a son of a, or a daughter and what is cherished by his father. And in addition to that, 
you are sanctified or you begin the sanctification process where you start to grow in Christ's likeness. Now, positionally, you're righteous in Christ. But actually in your life, it takes time to start seeing that manifest itself in your life where you begin to become completed. God's perfecting you. And we're only saying that you're not perfected. The process of being perfected does not happen by you pulling your bootstraps up, making it happen. It's still by God's grace that this occurs. Look at question 33. It unpacks these terms. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace. Where any part of all our sins and accepted us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Most evangelicals would say, yes, I, I agree with that. But this is what's so important to understand the next two points. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace. That's the common phrase, an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. So not only are we stated as righteous, declared as righteous, we are a son, we are a daughter. And most importantly, question 35, as it relates to Paul's question, having begun the spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. So it's the work of the Spirit that perfects you. The same Spirit who saved you, justified you, works to sanctify you. And He does this by enabling us, by giving us means of grace that feed our faith, that grow us in our trust. So as we grow in trust, a fruit of trusting will be obedience. Obedience doesn't make us His child. Being His child in the grace of God in Christ through the Spirit gives us wills that are changed, that move towards obedience, and when we don't, we feel convicted because we know we're out of step with our Father, not because we think He's ditching us. This is why Riken said so well earlier, and I quoted... The biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone through, by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone is a doctrine for the whole Christian life from the beginning to the end. Luther faced the criticism from some of the bishops who agreed with his biblical statement on justification by faith alone, but they struggled because they thought that if you taught that, people would not obey any longer. They said it's great for eternity, but it's terrible for life, this doctrine. And this is where Luther kept expressing No, when you're subdued by the grace of God, it starts changing your will towards obedience. That's actually what works. I know it for a fact because the scripture says it, but I've watched it in your lives. I've watched the difference between one who's motivated by guilt and fear and one who's motivated by gratitude in response to what God's done. Seen it in your lives as God has worked in you. I've sensed it in my own. Sins, areas that I've given to God to help me defeat and I struggle against them and I feel like when I fail at them that he doesn't love me quite the same or he's going to zap me somehow or he'll bless me if I have victory. When I'm freed from that and recognize, no, he accepts me completely in Christ even when I fail, before I fail. Now that changes my desire for that. And that's where victory actually starts happening. You mean if I do this, God will still love me? Yes. But why would I do it now that I know that? Why would I do that? He loved me, gave his son for me, and I'm still going to do it? Why would I do that? Big difference, brothers and sisters, big difference. Huge difference. This is why Paul writes his fifth question in verse 4. He says to a people who are apparently persecuted, like many in the first century church and many in our world today who trust in Christ. He says, did you suffer so many things in vain? In other words, all the persecutions and the sufferings you faced for the gospel, 
Now you want to change it, which is no gospel at all. You suffered for that. You suffered for your own righteousness or your belief that your own righteousness would save you. Do you suffer? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Why suffer for Christ if he didn't actually have the righteousness required to save? Suffering for an insufficient Savior? Is that what you did? That's vanity, Paul essentially says. You're suffering for a Christ who cannot save you unless you add your works. How foolish. You don't really believe that, do you? Think about what you're saying. Think about what you're doing. Look at the sixth question that he asks. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by by hearing with faith? He again for the third time returns to the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the miracles the Spirit of God was doing. Saving people, healing people, growing the church, protecting the church, empowering the church. This Spirit, did He do it because your works of the law, because you kept these feast days, because of circumcision, because of... Did He keep... Is that why the Spirit of God worked? Or did He work because faith was in Christ, so that anyone looking would say, this is the work of Christ, not the work of people. He did so. The Spirit of God was sent by the Father and the Son to work by faith. All of this is wrapped up, found in a simple statement in verse 1. Look there again. We've focused on the first half, but in closing, consider the sufficiency of faith alone and Christ alone for salvation. Again, re-emphasize in this verse, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Notice the second part now. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You saw what Christ did. If you didn't see it yourself, it was portrayed to you. It was spoken to you. It was explained to you. You know the depth. You know how deep it is what Jesus did. You understand what he suffered for you. You understand that God accepted that because he raised him again from the dead. You had that laid out for you. And now you want to add to that work by what you do? Christ is totally sufficient. Totally. Several years ago, I went to a family's house. I didn't know the family. They had a a living room with pictures on one side of the wall and a portrait on the other. There's a difference between pictures and portraits. Pictures are good, but they don't say much. You might have the family picture, and they don't usually cause you to stand in front of it and ask questions unless they're old and they're kind of funny. So the pictures are over here, but the portrait catches your eye. It's a big one. It was a painting. It was a portrait. In it was a picture of a man in a military uniform with an older Vietnam-era plane over his shoulder in a certain terrain there in the background. And it was one individual, and it was a young individual. It didn't look like anyone else in their family at the time. It automatically drew your attention to that portrait, and you would go over to it, and you'd look at it, and you would automatically, I'm sure anyone who walked in that room, would ask them about this person. Who's this person? Turns out it was the the, the couple's son who had died in Vietnam. Died uh, flying a plane. And and you would ask a series of questions, and that picture told a story. And it was a painting. It was a a portrait telling, depicting a story, and it governed the room. Uh, You couldn't, the room was dominated, you might say, by the portrait, and you're wondering about that portrait, what it meant, who this person was, why they were important, what place this person had in the life of the family, owned the house and the room, and so forth. A portrait tells a story. And what Paul says is, you are trying to add works, merit. Don't you recognize the portrait of Christ that you've been given in his crucifixion? 
He was portrayed for you, crucified, in all that that means. Not just a simple execution that Rome carried out all the time, but the crucifixion of Christ, which is the righteous one on the cross for your sins. He suffered and died for all you have done, brought it all to the cross. And he died, and God showed that he accepted that work on your behalf by raising Jesus from the dead, saying, I accept that sacrifice. And that beautiful portrait that's ugly in one sense, but beautiful for our righteousness in the other, against that backdrop, you're saying, that's not enough. I've got to do something. Let the portrait of the crucified Christ and what he has done and God raising him again be the portrait that rules your life, that dominates your room, that everything you do is done on the basis of your acceptance that has been purchased for you totally sufficiently by the work, the finished work of Christ in God raising him on the, di- uh, up on the third day, rather than these piddly little things we bring to God and say, you owe me for this, or you should accept me for this. Gospel is so much greater than anything we can do. And when we grasp this, I am convinced that our life will be so transformed that obedience becomes the question we ask, Lord, how can I obey? Help me obey. Rather, Lord, I'm just so trying so hard to obey. There's a big difference. I want to close by reading just a small portion of a wonderful uh, article that was written by Jerry Bridges. Jerry Bridges is, uh, was an elder in the PCA for a long time. He's on staff with Navigators, and he still speaks and teaches all over the country now. Wrote tremendous books on this subject. He takes these doctrines and he makes them plain and understandable. I want to read just in closing a portion of what he says in a wonderful little article that he writes called Gospel-Driven Sanctification. That our sanctification is based on understanding rightly our justification. Here as I close. Bridges says, I came to see that Paul's statement in Galatians 2.20, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, was made in the context of justification. Yet Paul was speaking in the present tense, the life I now live. Because of the context, I realized Paul was not speaking about his sanctification, but about his justification. For Paul then, justification, being declared righteous by God on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, was not only a past tense experience, but also a present day reality. Paul lived every day by faith in the shed blood and righteousness of Christ. Every day he looked to Christ alone for his acceptance with the Father. He believed, like Peter in 1 Peter 2, That even our best deeds, our spiritual sacrifices, are acceptable to God only through Jesus Christ. Perhaps no one apart from Jesus himself has ever been as committed a disciple, both in life and ministry, as the Apostle Paul. Yet, he did not look to his own performance, but to Christ's performance as the sole basis of his acceptance with God. So, Bridges writes, I learn that Christians need to hear the gospel all their lives because it is the power, it is the gospel that continues to remind us that our day-to-day acceptance with the Father is not based on what we do for God, but upon what Christ did for us in his sinless life, his sin-bearing death. I began to see that we stand before God today as righteous as we ever will be, even in heaven, because he has clothed us in the righteousness of his Son, Therefore, I don't have to perform to be accepted by God. Now I am free to obey him and serve him because I am already accepted in Christ. My driving motivation now is not guilt, but gratitude. Let's pray. 
Father, even when we understand that our acceptance with you is based on Christ's work, we still naturally tend to drift back into a performance mindset. Consequently, Lord, we see that we continually need to return to the gospel. Constantly, Lord, we need to have the gospel preached to us every day. Lord, I pray that you encourage the sinner here today who's just stuck up under their sins and cannot believe you would forgive them. Lord, show them a portrait of Christ, crucified and raised again for them. The complete sufficiency, Jesus' work, the sacrifice, provides for our sins, the forgiveness of them. And encourage my brothers and sisters today as they recognize their acceptance before you. And Lord, I pray that you would compel us to want to obey you, to love your law, because of the security we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, we confess that this doctrine, we are not making it, but it is making us. And we praise you for this. In Christ's name, amen. Please turn with me in your hymnals as we respond to the Word of God. Preach and also prepare, partake of the Lord's Supper. We turn to 154 and we'll stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2 of Thou Art the Way.